But I was supposed to preach on, on Deborah, and it became clear. And so, um, I, and then I started to study that, and I think I um, got clarity as to why that was. Um, so we're gonna, this is going to have two different parts to it. The first part is just I'm going to be walking down through the text, making comments with us, a little more of kind of like a commentary on the scripture. Um, but then I'm going to actually um, go a little bit of a different direction um, and, and talk about kind of the events of what's going on in our world right now and how this passage may, might apply to that. Okay, so uh, if you'll turn with me, we're in Judges chapter 4. And uh, the story of Deborah takes place um, twice. It takes place in Judges chapter 4, and then it takes place in Judges chapter 5. It's one of those ones where it happens two different ways. The first one is a narrative, and the second one is a poem. Um, and the poem is, cons- the chapter 5 is considered one of the earliest writings of all the scriptures. It's like a very, very historic. They, they think that it w- this was, that the, um, that the poem itself was written by an eyewitness of the of the account. It's written from the perspective of Deborah, and maybe she wrote it, but lots of times they personify someone, but they believe it was written by someone who watched the whole thing. We're not going to be in the poem, although we'll be pulling information from the poem to help explain what's going on in the narrative because we get uh, different stories uh, a little bit from the two chapters. So we're going to be in chapter four um, uh, and just walking down through the passage. I'm going to read this whole uh, story to us, making comments. Okay, so uh, starting in verse 1. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Now, you know that um, this is the pattern of judges. If you're familiar with the, the, the history of Israel, at this point, after they've come uh, from, the, uh, from Egypt and they're coming back now, they're in this place where there is very little law in the land. And we know that the, the kind of the story of judges is that each man does what is right in his own eyes, um, which is just a very, very bad place to be. It's a place that right now uh, we know in society is actually what's being taught to us to do. That the basic value in society right now is that everyone kind of has to have their own unique conscience and kind of figure things out. And that's what we're supposed to honor. The scriptures say that probably the most, one of the most horrific times in Israelite history was when each man did what was right in his own eyes. Our hearts are desperately wicked and deceitful above all else. They do not lead us toward God, you know? And so, um, they had just been delivered, and after they had been delivered by a judge, a person who rose up and did something for them, then when that leader failed away, uh, died, then uh, they go back to doing evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord sold them, verse 2, the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan. Notice how they got put under Canaan. Who did that? The Lord. Yeah, when, I get, when, when uh, my kids do something, there's consequences to what they do because I'm trying to help them learn. Uh, clearly, God is on a project with his people to teach them how to follow him and how to, to grow and thrive and be healthy. And so when they're not following him, there's consequences to that. The Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagayim. That's why I get paid the big bucks right there. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. I practiced that like twice before saying it. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. This is they started to sing the songs that we were just singing. Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. And there are moments in our life where, uh, where we can sing that a little more profoundly than other moments because we know how much of need we're in. And they're in a place of need. And it tells us why. It says, for he, that's Sisera, the commander, had 900 chariots of iron 
and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now, the Israelites, uh, as far as we know, have no chariots at all. Um, these iron-wheeled chariots are a total game-changer in war. So these are like the drones of their day, you know? Uh, this is like the modern war technology that gives them the upper hand. And so there's no way to fight back. They're being oppressed. There's 900 chariots and they can't do anything about it. So these guys are running all over them. Verse four, now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. All right, a couple of things here. Uh, first of all, Deborah was a woman and uh, that is a rare moment at this point in history to see a woman ruling. Um, and notice that the Bible doesn't give any commentary about the fact that she was a woman. There's a lot of people who uh, come up with theories as to why there was a woman who was a judge in this moment about the fact that after the 900 uh, chariots and the oppression that they were thin on numbers or that the men weren't stepping up or, or whatever. But actually the Bible doesn't say any of that. That's all projection. You know, uh, all it says is that Deborah was the judge. That's all it says. Um, and we stick with what it says. She was the prophetess. Um, two things. So there was this woman who was the prophetess. Secondly, there was a prophetess. Okay. Both those things are important to take note. Um, in the New Testament, we still see prophetesses. Prof I don't know how to say that in the plural. Uh, prophetai. S is. <laughs> and um, so uh, there's these female prophets in the Old Testament and these female prophets in the New Testament as well. The gift of prophet is clearly working both in the Old Testament and New Testament. The offices seem to change a little bit. Um, how those offices are recognized and how they function in society seems to change a little bit. But uh, clearly there's these moments where God raises up uh, these uh, female prophets and they uh, have powerful ministry. So uh, how that works out is a study across the scriptures. We're not going to get into all that because that's not the primary point here, but we will talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes. Um, okay, so she used to sit under the palm of Deborah, which uh, between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. So somebody had to govern. They didn't have gov you know, governing capability at this point. They didn't have a kingdom. So somebody had to be the one you know, calling the shots. People would come to this tree, the tree of Deborah, whether that was named for her or Rachel's handmaiden is not sure, but it's the tree of Deborah, the place they knew where to go to get judgment. And Deborah was the one casting out judgment and, uh, and leading them. Verse six, she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali and said to him, has not the Lord, the God of Israel commanded you, go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 people, 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army to meet you in the river by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops. And I will give him into your hand. All right, now notice what she says here. She says, did not the Lord tell you? And so uh, as a prophetess, she knows the Lord is speaking to this man that he's supposed to rise up and war. Now there's a sense here that God was already stirring in him to do this. And she's like naming that. And sometimes we all need that, don't we? Where the, God's put something on our heart, but we don't know if that's just like up in our head and if that's just me making this up, and sometimes when someone else is praying for us and they see something in us and they say, hey, you're supposed to be doing this. That can be a real like wake up call, 
for us. And it's really important that not only do we step and obey what the Lord's calling us to do, but it's also important that if we sense something in someone else, that we go and tell them. We have no idea how big of a deal it can be to go and say to someone, I really see this in you. You might want to think about that. God can use that as a major confirmation in people's life. And uh, that's happened a number of times in my life. Okay, and um, and so I, I'm sure that's happened for some of you as well. So she calls out Barak and he goes uh, his here's his response. Um, where did I go? What's that? 18. Eight. There we go. I was in the wrong paragraph there. Barak said to her, this is really important. Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. If you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, on the road which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the glory will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Okay, so stop there for a second. There's obviously a little bit of a gender thing going here, you know, that we're starting to see. And what's happening in this moment is that he if he had heard from the Lord, had not responded. Now that she had told him, hey, didn't the Lord say this to you? He says, I'll go, but there's a limitation on his obedience. I'll only go if you go. Uh, Now, it might have been that Deborah was a pretty amazing warrior. I don't know. But uh, chances are the primary reason why he wants her there is what? Any sense? Well, maybe. maybe. (laughs) We will talk about that too, actually. We're getting... Sherry, you got ahead of me there. That was nice. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, she's the, she's, the prof- she's the prophetess. So this is, like, this is like bringing the Ark of the Covenant into battle with you, right? She's the spiritual leader. So we're going to take the spiritual leader with us because there's no way that the enemy is going to get us when we have the prophetess with us. Right, And so it does, it's not necessarily about her wielding a sword, but there is this kind of sense of God will go with us if she goes with us. This is a very important point because God would go with him because God told Barak to go do it. But Barak, his trust isn't fully in the Lord. His trust is in this woman who trusts the Lord. And so there's a little bit of a difference there. I don't know if you've ever been in that spot where you have a hard time trusting the Lord for yourself and it's easy to trust in a person who trusts in the Lord. But it's very important that when the Lord calls us that we have confidence in his ability to move in each and every one of us. You know, there's not just unique people that he moves in. He moves in any of us. And if he calls us, we can trust him. So she says that the glory is going to go to a woman. She's not talking about herself. The story will reveal to us what she's talking about. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, their tribes of Israel. And he calls the tribes of Israel to come. And 10,000 men went up at his heels and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites and the descendants of, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kadesh. Okay, so the, Moses' father-in-law, uh, his descendants, uh, there's this guy who's a part of that tribe that's not a tribe of Israel, and, but he had kind of been hanging out on his own. Here's the story. In his tent, all right, we're going to find out something about his wife. We're about to find out something about his wife. That's why it, it gave us that. 
information. Verse 12, when Sisera told Barak, the son of Abinoam, that uh, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots. So he calls 900 of 900 chariots of iron and all the men who were with him from Harasheth, Hagayim, there it is, up to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Okay, here's an important thing. I'll read one more verse or the rest of that verse. Does not the Lord go out before you? Picture her pointing when she says that. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from, the, from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men and with 10,000 men following him. The Lord surrounded Sisera and the chariots and all the army before Barak uh, by the edge of the sword. He routed, the, routed Sisera and all the chariots um, by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. Now I want to stop there for a second. What we know from the, from the poem in chapter 5 is the way that God defeated them had to do with rain, okay? So it was when God opened up the floodgates and the rain came down. Why do you think the rain helped them in this situation? Mud, chariots, wheels. Okay, so now remember, even when she gave him the prophetic word and said, God's going to take them out for you, I'm gonna, he's going to send you to the river and you're going to meet the chariots there. So she already had a vision in her mind of how this whole thing was going down, right? Of like, she had probably been praying and had this picture where they were stuck in the mud and she's like, oh, here it is. So she's praying and now the whole thing is starting to happen and she looks and whatever she had been picturing, she's seeing it transpire. She's seeing thunderclouds. She's seeing a river and she's pointing and saying, don't you see it? The Lord is in front of you. Go get it, Barak. Go get it. And sure enough, they get routed by the sword because their technology is gone. And as soon as their technology is gone and it's man-to-man combat, uh, you just didn't want to mess with Barak and his crew apparently. Okay, and so now what happens is Sisera, once his chariot is stuck, presumably, gets out of his chariot and runs, because why else would he get out of his chariot? Right, so he gets out of his chariot and he runs. All right, Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away, and Barak pursued the chariots, the ones that got away, and the army to Harasheth Hagayim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword, not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael the wife of Heber, the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin and the king of Hazor, the house of Heber, the Kenite. So in other words, bad king, this guy, their tribes had good relation. And so he's like on the run and he finds this house. And Jael, the guy's wife, came out to meet Sisera and said to him, turn aside, my Lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. This is a skilled woman right here, using all of her faculties, okay? She is finding a way to bring this man into the home. And so she says, don't be afraid. I got you. Come on in, okay? And so she brings him in. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug to hide him. And he, I added to hide him. And he said to her, please give me a little water to drink, for I'm thirsty. Listen to this. Does she give him water? So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. Why did she give him milk instead of water? Yeah, water refreshes you. Milk puts you to sleep, right? 
She probably warmed that milk up, gave him cookies with it. She said, it's all good. I got you. And she did. And he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent. And if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was laying fast asleep from weariness. And so he died. Can you feel the reverberation in the room? She needs to be locked up. That's a scary woman right there. That is a scary woman. Apparently the, apparently the women uh, were the ones who set up and tore down the tents, is what I read from the commentaries. So she's pretty accustomed to driving tent pegs in. Because you think, like, I don't want to go into too much detail here, but, like, basically you get one real good shot, right? And she got a real good shot. And it uh, pinned the guy to the ground there. And she knew what she was doing with a tent peg and a mallet. Behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, who subdued Jabin? God. God subdued Jabin. It wasn't a woman. It wasn't a man. It was God. Okay? The king, now, she's going to get all the glory. She's going to get all the credit with the people, and that's why he's not going to get the glory. But God is the one who did it. The king of Canaan, before uh, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel, and the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. Now, I'm going to have us look at the first verse in chapter 5 before we move on. This is really important because in reflection of this chapter and this whole story, there's something that I believe is very important um, for us to see. And I didn't ask people to put it on the screen, so we're probably not going to see it on the screen. This is what it says, the first two verses. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day. So here comes the song, the poem. That the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. Hear that? So their big cry, when they're about to tell the story and song, they're like, here's the big moment. Leaders actually led and people actually threw themselves at the cause and bless the Lord. The Lord was doing something awesome and saved us because the leaders actually led and the people threw themselves in. That was the thing. And in that, what we see is a picture in this moment when things were chaotic in their nation and things weren't working and there was evil all over the place and they were crying out to God. What ultimately ended up happening was in the mess and in the chaos, there was a movement that started to take place where people decided to take responsibility for their nation and for themselves and to rise up. Okay? Dangerous talk here. Dangerous talk. You start talking revolution, you know? But when you're being oppressed by the Canaanites and they got 900 chariots and your kids are being killed and your women are being carried off and you're getting 
killed all the time. What do you need to do? You need to find a way to take responsibility in order to change the situation. Well, I want to say something to us as the church in America right now, and particularly the church in Pottstown, particularly the church of Parker Ford right here, is that we have been under oppression from the enemy. And he wants to take us out. Man, he wants to disempower us. He wants us not to thrive. He doesn't want our kids to do well at all. He wants us to be divided. He wants the church to be sidelined. He wants us to be hurting and broken and in pain and depressed. And he wants us hopeless. And he wants us that whole feeling of under the thumb of oppression where I have to just, I guess I have to just go over here and do what's right in my own eyes and live life for myself. That's exactly what the enemy wants wants to do to us right now. And this message to us is the same message. Don't believe it for a second. Don't believe that for a second. Rise up. Rise up. Rise up against the devil. Rise up against the voices that haunt your head and your heart. Rise up in prayer. We are mighty and powerful as the people of God. We have the greatest power on earth. And that is not an exaggeration. That is not hyperbole. We have the power of God. It's given to us. We got to rise up. It's on us. All right. That's the story, okay? Now I need to make some other applications. This is, um, before I make a transition, anybody got anything you want to ask about Deborah or anything you want to say? Seriously, we'll just go straight Bible study here for a second. Anything? Anything you notice that you think is worth sharing there? Okay. When I realized that I was going to be teaching on Deborah, um, it was uh, either Monday or Tuesday, and I was like, oh, I think I might be teaching on Deborah because we might end up with our first female president. Um, and I, it might be talking about, like, leadership, this woman in leadership, you know? And ha- what happened and what's going on in the Bible with that and everything. Well, as it turns out, that wasn't the case, as most of you probably know. <laughs> you, you heard it? Okay, yeah. Nice. What did end up happening was when I woke up the next day and realized what all was going on and realized who our uh, president-elect was, I realized that um, as the church, it is going to be extremely important that we speak to gender right now. That There is a lot of damage over what's happened in the last however many months in our country. And one of the biggest areas of concern that I have right now is that there is a man who's going to be going into office who we have heard things come out of his mouth that have not been okay. And we need to acknowledge that. We have to acknowledge this is not about who we should or shouldn't have voted for. This is not about politics. What this is, is that when John the Baptist realized that there were things that were going on with Herod and Herodias that were inappropriate, he called it out and he got killed for it. And that had to do with his sexual relationships, his intimacy. That's what he called out. And what's happening right now in our country is that there is mass confusion around gender all over the place. And it's a very, very big deal in our society. And we are told in Timothy that the church is the pillar and the foundation of truth. 
That means that we as the church have to be able to speak truth. And whatever God's going to do on a political realm, whatever he's going to do on a national realm, whether you were excited when you woke up or disappointed when you woke up, it doesn't change the fact that we need to address this issue. It's an issue that has to be addressed right now. There's been a lot of pain. And so um, here's some principles that I think uh, are important. Um, when, when I uh, realized, uh, as soon as I realized that um, Trump and Hillary were going to be our, the, uh, after the primary, they were going to be the candidates, I, I don't know about you, but very, very quickly I realized that this race is going to have a lot to do with gender. And I don't mean just that we're going to vote according to gender lines. I don't mean that. What I mean is, is that we, we saw in two characters who were public, public characters, we saw things that can go wrong in a gender displayed in both of those places, which is why people all the time were saying things like, is this really what we're choosing between? But what we saw was the, the total division of two people, and we saw them fight bitterly, and they were opposed on so many levels, on policies, of course. But it was also what can, I mean, it was like being in a really bad marriage counseling session. And I'm looking at the, at the communication here and the thought process here, and I'm like, I've seen this many times. Like, seriously, this is what can go wrong in the gender thing. This is what can happen. And so I, I started praying and started talking to some other prayer people right away and saying, we need to pray that God will actually reveal things about gender in this time because we were already in a confusing spot in our nation around gender when it came to intimacy and relationships, when it comes to identity and how I identify myself in gender and all of those things. And then there's this hyperbole, when it, this, this division in the, in the election. And in the middle of that, uh, you know... <laughs> There's a few things that, that we got to remember. And um, the first thing that we have to say is that chauvinism and uh, misogyny, the, the whole idea of gender bias is very, very real. You know, that's a very real problem in our world. An extremely real problem. And, you know, I've been in foreign countries where um, I watched a woman get thrown out of a bus because she was a woman and, uh, and uh, you know, moments like that. And the, the moments where you see that, it's like, oh, okay, there's gender bias, but then we think that's not a reality for us, and that's not true. Just because we're a little more civilized doesn't mean that there isn't that problem. Now, here's a thing about this that's very important, is that when it comes to inequality, there are different kinds of inequality. Racial inequality and gender inequality are not the same thing and need to be treated differently. They are both major problems in our world. There are some similarities between them, but there are also differences between them, okay? And so it is very important that every piece of inequality that we experience, we don't just blanket all inequalities into the same thing because we have to handle each principle uh, uniquely. And this is why. When you think about male and female and how male and female were created, what were they created for? What was the purpose? What's that? Completion. They completed each other. And what did they complete in particular? The image of God. It's right there. We exist to reveal God's nature and to delight in his presence. The nature of God is revealed through gender. And this is how this works, is that God is three and God is one. Gender is two, 
we are one, okay? And that's the way it works. It's a living biography of who God is. When that thing gets messed up, things go wrong. The biggest heresies in the history of the church have to do with whether we see Jesus and God or the Spirit and Jesus or the Spirit and the Father in the right relationship. If we say that Jesus is not God, that is a historic major heresy in the church. If we say that God is only one but not three, that is a heresy in the church. If we say that God is three but not one, that's a heresy in the church. And that isn't just a heresy like you've got to dot your I and cross your T of doctrine. When you walk that out, you realize it has major effects on how we live. In the same way, if we overemphasize the distinction between gender, we make a major problem. And if we underemphasize the distinction between gender, we, may, we have a major problem. And in our society right now, we are doing both of those things simultaneously all over the place. We're trying to erase gender, and we are trying to massively divide gender at the same time. And the picture that God has is that his very nature, as described in Deuteronomy chapter, chapter 6, the center of the Old Testament, says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is we were not made to function independently of one another in the genders. Therefore, we shouldn't be competing in the genders. That's our first problem. The first problem after the brokenness of humanity is the division between man and woman. I mean, of course, it's division between God, and then instantly that causes division between man and woman. And there's a competition, and there's a struggle, and there's all that stuff in the fall. Okay, now listen, that... uh, there are things that, here's the, so here's, the, here's principle that's really important, I believe, is that when God created us with unique identities and gender, not everything that is different between us is bad. Just because sin has affected it doesn't mean that everything about the male ego is bad. Okay, the other day I was I had a meeting in Chester Springs and I was cutting through Kimberton. And as I was cutting through, there was this uh, big, I don't know if it was a Texas Longhorn or what, but it was a, it was a bull that had... I'm assuming it was a bull. I don't know. Maybe it wasn't. Somebody's going to be like, your whole analogy is wrong because that was a cow, dude. Um, but it had this, this thing had huge long horns. And there was like a, one of those like metal feeding troughs. I don't know what they call them. Sorry. Uh, 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 one of those like circular ones that they try to get into, you know. And it has like hay down in the middle. They, and it came in and I watched this happen. It came in like it had never done this before. It came in and tried to eat and bang. Its horns hit, and it couldn't get down in. It couldn't get there. And I think it's because it had gone low enough that it couldn't get its head down. And so then I saw it back up, and it had to eat the scraps that had fallen on the ground. While the rest of the cows were sitting there eating out of it, there was stuff falling out. And I was thinking, huh, isn't that interesting? Those horns have a really good purpose. And if you want to go cow tipping, I dare you to go in there to go cow tipping. You know? But the guy can't eat unless he gets help. We were made to complement each other in the gender. And anytime we say there's no distinction in gender, then we lose the beauty of the fact that there are God-given limitations to who I am just because I'm a dude. You know? Just because of that, I am limited. I'm limited for all sorts of other reasons too. I'm limited because of what spiritual gift God has not given me. 
You know, I'm limited because of the fact that I'm a visionary guy who misses details all over the place. And the whole church said, amen. And <laughs> um, there's all sorts of things that limit us, you know. But the fact that the guy had big horns isn't a problem. That's not a problem. That is a creative opportunity for that community to work together. And when it comes to gender right now, when there's a combative tone around that and there isn't mutual submission and mutual honor, then we lose the beauty of what it is that God has created. There is a lot of complicated things that make the gender divide an issue for us right now. It's not just about gender. Most of it has to do with things like we take a lot of identity in what we do which complicates the whole thing because that's a guy who the thorns are coming up and the guy's just plowing, trying to get stuff done and not losing sight of the relationship. It's not even about that. It's about something else. It's about some orphan spirit that a guy's trying to figure out in his life, trying to find out how to, uh, you know, earn his way, earn his keep. And in the midst of it, he's not taking care of the woman who's next to him, you know? has nothing to do with him not wanting to care for her sometimes. has to do with something totally different. There's all sorts of reasons why this stuff manifests. Once sin gets in, it's really complicated, and things get demented and messed up. But I want to say something that I think um, is important for uh, the ladies here to hear. Um, first of all, if you are a strong woman, and there are all sorts of different ways that strength reveals itself. If you are strong in prayer, if you are strong in community, if you are strong at work, if you are strong wherever, do not be ashamed of your strength because you're a woman. Don't be ashamed. You're not weird. There's not something wrong with you because you're a woman and you're strong as God given and it is good and we need you. Okay? We need you. Sometimes there's been all the stereotypes, the Western stereotypes of, of what male and female are makes it tough for women who have a lot of strength to feel like that's a feminine quality. That's just not true. Look at Deborah. Look at Deborah. I dare you to look at Deborah. You know, pretty amazing character she is. Secondly, when uh, we as men have tried to be the image of God on our own, we have failed miserably every time. And, uh, and women who uh, have been on the other end of that, we have not acknowledged at times how valuable and how central you are in the image of God. And on behalf of men, I don't have the right to do it on behalf of all men, but I'll do it here at Parker Ford Church. We're sorry. We're sorry for that. You know, we were made to complement each other. And the unique things about you are not things that we want to... Uh, talk down upon. And um, I, I confess there have been moments in my life where I said things that I look back and realize I used to say that all the time and didn't really think about it. And now I think about it and say like, you know, when I used to tell my buddies, you know, you throw like a girl, <laughs> you know, like, well, Deborah could probably kick my tail, <laughs> you know? Um, and there are unique differences, and our bodies are made different, our personalities are made different, and we each have different things. But we don't want to talk down about you. Um, we really honor you. And there are things that you can do that we cannot, and I'm not talking about just having babies, you know? No, we wouldn't want to do that, no. 
but there are things about your leadership style and how you lead that see things that most guys never do. And I don't want to talk, paint with too broad of a stroke. There are many things that overlay us in the whole stare. But there are things about uh, a woman that she can see typically because the way the right brain and left brain are connected in ways that the guy's brain isn't and all that stuff. Like, there's some really valuable things that we don't have that mesmerize us at times about how you get stuff done in ways that we couldn't imagine getting it done. And for what's been said over the airways and over the TV, I don't care who puts what Supreme Court judges in this conversation, just for this conversation. Whoever's putting what Supreme Court judges wherever, whoever is in line with uh, our uh, religious beliefs when it comes to uh, policies or whatever, no matter any of that stuff, I do not agree with what I heard from the mouth of the man who will be our president when it comes to how things worked with women, okay? And we need to say that, and we need to stand on that because there are principles that need to be more important than the political ones. Headship is very important in the Bible. Leadership is very, very important in the Bible. And that's a whole nother study. But when we in the church talk about headship and put that out here and put mutual submission and love for one another back here, then we have things in the wrong order. And because of that, we're not honoring the nature of God. Because what you don't hear God talking about all the time is how Father is in charge of the Trinity. What you hear is how the Trinity is one. And how they work that stuff out. Like, yeah, you know, Father clearly has some leadership roles here. You know, that he's walking in and he's naturally wired this way and the Son's naturally wired this way and the Spirit's naturally wired that way. And in our genders, in our gifts, and all of those things, there is a design and there is a purpose, but we very quickly get hung up on the secondary thing and emphasize that without emphasizing the primary thing that we were created to be one in the nature of God. And when you take any one of those pieces out and deal with it independently, then we're losing the picture of what it's all about, okay? So um, I could go on and on on this, and you guys have heard enough, I'm sure. Um, one other principle that I will end with, which isn't about gender, but is about this passage and about our world. And that's that leadership in general, regardless of gender, is um, when people look around and see that you can't walk on the roads. They weren't able to walk on the trade routes in their country and feel safe anymore. And somebody decided to get on her knees and pray and say, we're not going to stand for this. This is it. And they didn't go and just have a revolution. What they did was they got on their knees and said, by God, we're not going to let this stay this way. And they started to pray and God started to direct and command his troops. And this guy did this and this woman did this and this woman did this and all this different stuff happened. And in the middle of that, God stirred up and brought relief. And leadership if we want leadership, then I do want to say one other thing. It's been tough on the guys today, you know? It's been tough on the guys, and I get that. And I, I just want to say, 
women, please be patient with it because not every guy can be thrown into the same category of all the stuff that, you know, has been experienced there. But there is one last thing in this leadership thing that's to us as men specifically in Timothy. And, and that is the command to men that I desire that men everywhere lift up holy hands in prayer. We want power. We want strength. We want to lead. We got to pray. We got to pray, pray, pray. That is where we make our living as men. Okay? That's what we do is we pray. Tuesday nights, leadership in this church, the elders come together and try to lead our congregation in a time of prayer. I would invite you, men, women, children, all of us to pray because the power in our world is not the power that's invested in the White House. It's the power that's invested right here at the altar when we're on our knees and we're praying. Greatest power on earth. Let's do it. Father God, we just come to you right now. And we know that uh, there has been all sorts of distortion. There has been a lot of things that have been spoken uh, in, uh, in the last number of months in our society that we just ask God, as a church, you call us a royal priesthood. So as the church, as a representation of the church in America, God, we just ask, we ask for your blessing and your healing over this nation. God, we ask for, we repent on behalf of things that have been said all across this political debate. We reject solidly the things that aren't from you and aren't from your scripture. And then we pray for our future president and our current president. And we pray, God, that you would put them in positions that, God, the church would be able to function and flow appropriately, that you would raise up the church as warriors in prayer, that, God, there would stir in us a thing that isn't depressed, that isn't putting false hope in government or isn't depressed about government, but is instead having worn out knees from praying and having worn out hands from serving and having worn out hearts from caring. God, and I just ask that you would bless us, bless us as a church, that this would be our moment in America, that we would be enough is enough. The church will not sit on the sidelines. We will raise up and we will love and we will say the things that need to be said, not in hatred, but in absolute love. And we will speak the truth. God, raise us up, empower us in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.